Welcome back to One Nail at a Time, Insights for Building Your Patient's Medical Home. I'm Lori. And I'm Michelle, and we're with the Alberta Medical Association. So Michelle, you chatted to Dr. Karen Siegel. I didn't know you were having a staff <laughs> And then I got the footage so we could record this, and I listened to it, and I thought, what is the topic <laughs> of this podcast? I know, like, what, what isn't the topic of this podcast? We covered an awful lot of ground. Okay, I took notes. And at first I was like, this is about quality improvement. This is about panel-based care. Oh, this is about optimizing your team, the importance of relationship with your physician. Oh, patient-centered interactions, warm handoffs and optimizing your team, CIIC PAR, leveraging your HQCA report, really using data to drive your decisions, EMR optimization, and my list could go on. Yeah. Yeah, it sure could. And I I know it's hard to pick one thing that really stands out in this one, but I think I'd have to say uh, continuity of care is maybe the star of this. And just again, once again, such a simple concept, but it shows the power that continuity has. And so we're going to have our first listener challenge <laughs> in this podcast. Uh, Michelle, you get quite excited about something that Dr. Siegel says, and you actually clap. I didn't listening. even know I was doing that. Yeah, I heard, I heard you clap. So I'm going to challenge the listeners to see if they can hear you clapping at one of her responses. Mm, mysterious. Well, let's, let's listen and hear where that is. Dr. Karen Siegel, welcome to One Nail at a Time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Karen, can you take a moment just to tell us a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. So I am a community family physician here in Northwest Calgary, and I uh, do currently do a practice share with another lovely woman. Uh, we have a total of about 1,300 patients. Great. Well, let's get started. And uh, Karen, we really are, are curious to hear your story about some of the work you've been doing recently with your patients with COPD. So why don't you tell us a bit about how all of that got started? Certainly. So um, we have been uh, paneled as a clinic for quite some time now and have been working on our patients with diabetes to organize a process to look after them. And so once that was sort of in place, we we had to sit down to figure out who we might work on next. Um, and so we knew that COPD and uh, congestive heart failure, CHF, were sort of big, important provincial priorities, and that uh, hospitalization for these problems were quite expensive, and also that an exacerbation had, was quite significant from a patient perspective in terms of quality of life and their function. Um, and so we kind of just picked one of those and, and landed on COPD. So then as a group, you decided to work on your processes for supporting patients with COPD. So can you tell us a bit about what steps you took to actually get started with that? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I think that the the Really, the difficult part, frankly, was identifying our COPD patients and making sure we had a pretty robust list. Um, there's not, there's not one billing code for COPD. And so, yeah. um, we kind of went through a bunch of different billing codes, uh, sort of entries into the profile, medications, that kind of thing. And we generated a list of people who might have COPD. And then we presented those to our, our, our docs, our, our physicians and for validation, really. Um, and so, as you probably know, um, COPD is diagnosed using a lung function test or a spirometry. And so we did find that some of our patients hadn't had that um, and were still identified as having COPD or that they were quite old and that kind of thing. Um, and so some of our patients actually needed upgrading in terms of investigations and things to sort of fully validate that list. 
Hmm. The uh, the next part was to identify our higher risk patients. So the thought process here was um, we wanted to identify our patients who are at risk of exacerbation. Uh, so not everybody exacerbates. And those were the people that we wanted to approach um, because, again, those are the ones that are going to be hospitalized and require more attention. Um, and so there's actually a really great document uh, guideline about what makes somebody um, higher risk and how to handle them. And so we... we um, Sort of followed that. So people with prior exacerbation are actually the, the highest risk group, uh, followed by the people who have um, more severe stages of COPD, even if they haven't historically exacerbated. And so the first category um, was a little bit complicated. And so um, what we wanted to do was figure out who, in fact, has exacerbated, which we couldn't get actually from our electronic medical record or we couldn't get a complete list from that. Um, and we, we knew that um, going to net care for every patient to figure out had they been prescribed medication at a, at a clinic outside of ours or had they been to emerge or had they been admitted was going to be a really onerous process because we couldn't mm-hmm. do it at the panel level. Right. Um, so we approached, um, Dimer, which is the analytics group within AHS about getting some match data on our COPD patients specifically. And they were kind enough to share with us some, some visit information, diagnostic codes and pharmacy data. And so from that, we were actually able to figure out a pretty good estimation of who had um, exacerbated. And then the, the other part was the more severe um, COPD people who hadn't exacerbated. And again, that comes from that lung function test data. Um, so then we ended up with a, a, about, I want to say it was about 400 patients because we're from a large clinic uh, that had COPD, give or take. And then about 80 of them were considered higher risk. Great. So so you went through, it sounds like, quite a few different steps to to identify who you wanted to target for this work. And so once you knew who they were, what did you do? Yeah, so the the higher risk people, we wanted to um, bring them in on a regular basis to see our respiratory educator. Um, so the the visit with the respiratory educator would really focus on optimizing medication uh, because we know that some medications lower risk of exacerbation and probably more importantly to develop an action plan um, so that if a patient knew they were getting sicker, they didn't wait too long to be seen or to, to get care. And even some of our patients who had historically exacerbated, we provided with the prescription that they could take um, if they were getting quite sick and then see us if they couldn't get in to see us in a timely fashion. The other thing that we did was, um, which we continue to do, is to send out annual uh, vaccine reminders to all of our COPD patients. Um, so we know that influenza vaccine is one of the best things we can do to lower exacerbation risk. Um, and then also pneumonia uh, is an, another strategy there. And knowing that you're still in the middle of this work, can you just share a bit about what you've learned so far? Um, yeah. So first of all, it's super important to have a team to support you in doing this work. So it's not something that doc will do by themselves, obviously. Um, and so we do have uh, a lady who coordinates our all of our multidisciplinary team members um, who kind of owns our um, registries, so to speak. And so she's the one who actually reaches out to our CPD patients. And, you know, we had to be a bit strategic about it because um, we didn't want everybody to come in all at the same time. You kind of wanted to spread them out through the year. Um, and so she has been phoning people and sending letters and that kind of thing uh, to get people to come in to see our respiratory educator. And then we also have a, um, a nursing team. And one of our nurses uh, has been quite heavily involved in this um, in terms of the, the vaccination side of things. So we had contemplated, do we bring people into our clinic to do influenza vaccines and pneumonia vaccines? And we ended up not doing that in the end. Um, but there was a bunch of a bunch of um, discussion back and forth about what was the best way to approach these patients. 
So you've got team members coordinating and managing and strategically spreading out the work, which sounds really great. Uh, but I'm curious to know, because it seems like no matter how carefully planned QI work is, things rarely unfold as smoothly as we plan. So have you had any unexpected challenges or surprises so far? Of course. <laughs> um, I think probably the most interesting thing that we've noticed is that uh, there have been some, some really great engagement from about half of our more risky, at-risk patients, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, and about half of them just are not well, willing to engage at all. And so certainly with um, other patients, we, we're quite well aware that the, there's a pretty strong patient-physician relationship there. And so when somebody who's not that physician or a known person in the clinic calls them up to say, hey, your doctor's noticed that you have this clinic condition, we wanted you to be seen. People aren't super keen to do that unless they have that mm. kind of warm handoff, if you know what I mean. Yes, um, and yeah. so we're, we're trying to figure out how best to now incorporate that into our process. So the idea would be to have an alert of some sort using the electronic medical record that a doc mm-hmm. might see when that patient comes in and says, hey, by the way, while you're here, it would be a good idea to set up an appointment with our respiratory educator to follow up on your lung condition. And um, so we're just trying to sort out how best to do that. And I do wonder also, I mean, if some of these people might be quite sick and have be on auction, for example, and might not be very mobile. So we're trying to explore other ways to work with these patients. Um, and, you know, engage them and get them to, to, to follow through on what we're trying to do without making it harder for them because of mobility and things. The other um, challenge that we had was our, um, we had a change in our respiratory educators. So we had a lovely, a lovely lady who ended up going to work somewhere else, but she was very involved. And so when she uh, left our clinic, um, it took some time to create relationships with other people to, to sort of follow through on the, um, the endeavor. And um, the mm-hmm. other thing uh, is that while we had information, or we still do, but while we had sort of historical information about exacerbations, um, we, we, uh, didn't have a fantastic way of, um, having continuing information about whether people were exacerbating. And so we have, um, we have been part of CPAR for a little while, but we recently signed up to CII. And so we're super excited about getting your e-notifications, uh, which will help us yes. if people have <laughs> exacerbated, um, or if it's exacerbated in future. And I guess yeah. the obvious current reason as to why this is a challenge is COVID-19 and mm-hmm. uh, COPD patients uh, not being somebody we want to expose to COVID-19. We're, of course, not super tempted to bring them into clinic right at this moment in time. Uh, that makes good sense. And I'm sure it will be even more helpful now that you're getting connected through CII and we'll be getting those e-notifications when your patients show up in the eMERGE or are admitted or discharged from hospital. And along those lines, I understand that you've been working with the Health Quality Council of Alberta um, over the past few months to develop a resource for quality exchange, and it has a lot to do with continuity of care. Can you tell us more about that? Absolutely. So, I mean, I think we all know, or at least most of us that, that, that sort of follow guidelines and listen to things know that continuity of care to the same family physician has significant positive outcomes. Uh, sort of reduced visits to emerge, reduced hospitalizations, just better, better outcomes overall. So uh, the HQCA had looked at this question specifically with respect to patients with a diagnosis of CPD who had been admitted with uh, a diagnosis of CPD as their primary diagnosis kind of thing. And they looked at this over, I think it was about a seven to eight year period. And they assigned a continuity level to a a patient, to each patient on an annual basis. So that a continuity for an individual patient might change over time. 
Um, and they found actually what's absolutely fascinating to me. They found that lower continuity patients. Um, so that's people who have continuity less than 50%. So that means that they see their own family physician less than 50% of the time of all primary care visits. So those people with low continuity were seven times more likely to be admitted to hospital for COPD than people who had high continuity, which is the greater than 80% category. Seven times. That's, that's, that's big. That's huge. Yeah. Yeah. And, and similarly, even the medium continuity, which we see quite a bit of. So that's, um, patients with continuity between 50 and 79%. These people are three and a half times more likely to be admitted with a diagnosis of CBD compared to the higher continuity patients. So you can imagine that, but the potential for impact on patients and on the system, if we are able to move a patient from a low continuity category to a high continuity category, or even from a medium to a high continuity, I know that when I think of COPD patients in my practice, I couldn't tell you exactly how many I have, but I want to say about 24. So it's not like a huge number. Um, but even if we can just move a, a small number of those patients over, we can have a significant impact. And from a physician perspective, thinking about those numbers, even the total of 24 and 10% of that or 20% of that, that seems extremely manageable. I should be able to make that improvement. Yes, and I was reading, according to the HQCA, the cost for an exacerbation for a single COPD patient is about $10,000. So those prevented hospitalizations can add up to big savings for the system. And of course, not to mention that every prevented exacerbation has a huge impact on patients' quality of life. And so much of it hinges on good continuity of care, such a simple concept and yet so powerful. Karen, my final question to you is about that. From your perspective, if you were to give, um, you know, physicians and teams listening to this podcast some simple steps to get started, what would you, what would you tell them? Yeah, so I think I think the bottom line is to break it down and not to feel like you have to own it all yourself. Um, so the first part is to know your patients. So to identify the panel of patients that you're working on, whether that's diabetes, COPD, congestive heart failure. And that takes a little bit of, of time to do, but there'll be people in your clinic that can help you do that. Um, and then the second thing again is exactly that to form, to form that team. So, so, um, you can have your, 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 um, administrative people help you with identifying those patients, with calling those patients, your multidisciplinary health team also meeting with those patients and helping you decide on follow up. Um, and then using your electronic medical record to, to help you do that. So they're, they all have tools in for reminders and ways of pulling mm-hmm. lists and those kinds of things. And then the, the last thing would be to, um, just to make sure that you're evaluating your efforts. Um, so, so just pick, pick a measurement and follow it through. And so, um, mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be a comprehensive, complicated evaluation, but a measure or two to know whether what you're doing is, is working and then to know whether you need to change, change strategies. Um, and then I guess I'd, I'd, I put a plug in there for the CPAR CII also, because uh, that will help you identify your people who are, who are, um, at risk, whether they're in eMERGE for COPD or CHF or whatever they're there for. Um, yeah, that's a big help. Yeah. And you men- mentioned measures and it sounds like you're, you're kind of early on in your work here and it sounds like you're, you're seeing positive results. But once you've had a chance to gather uh, enough data to analyze, uh, we'd love to have you back to hear how this all, how this all plays out. I'd love that. That'd be great. Great. Well, thank you again for joining us, Karen. And uh, until part two. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for tuning in. Check out the show notes for links to the tools, resources, and websites that were referenced in this podcast. Also, we'd love to hear from you. 
Leave us a comment, tell us what you thought and what you'd like to hear more about. And until next time, grab your hammer and keep building one nail at a time.